Welcome to the Unknown Friends podcast. I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson from Kitty Wayne Productions, and I'm so glad you've joined me today. From late July to the end of August, we are taking a short break from our usual weekly book reviews, and instead I'm reading aloud the complete novel Man Alive by G.K. Chesterton. If you haven't yet listened to my introduction to Man Alive and my brief analysis of the book's characters and themes, check out my most recent book review, episode 26 of season 2, from July 14th. Today's episode is an unabridged recording of the second half of Man Alive chapter 5, but be aware that my narration occasionally deviates from the original text when I encounter profanity or offensive language. This happens rarely, but I am omitting or substituting a couple of words in this chapter, since I'm not comfortable using that kind of language. That said, I hope you thoroughly enjoy part two of this chapter of Man Alive. Man Alive by G.K. Chesterton Chapter 5 The Allegorical Practical Joker Continued It is quite true, said Dr. Cyrus Pym, who had listened throughout the speech with a seriousness which only an American could have retained through such a scene. It is true that I have been perceptibly less hampered in private inquiries. Dr. Pym, cried Warner in a sort of sudden anger. Dr. Pym, you aren't really going to admit. Smith may be mad went on the melancholy moon in a monologue that seemed as heavy as a hatchet. But there was something, after all, in what he said about home rule for every home. Yes, there is something, when all's said and done, in the high court of Beacon. It is really true that human beings might often get some sort of domestic justice, where just now they can only get legal injustice. Oh, I am a lawyer, too and I know that as well. It is true that there's too much official and indirect power. Often and often the thing a whole nation can't settle is just the thing a family could settle. Scores of young criminals have been fined and sent to jail when they ought to have been thrashed and sent to bed. Scores of men, I am sure, have had a lifetime at Hanwell when they only wanted a week at Brighton. There is something in Smith's notion of domestic self-government, and I propose that we put it into practice. You have the prisoner. You have the documents. Come, we are a company of free, white, Christian people, such as might be besieged in a town or cast up on a desert island. Let us do this thing ourselves. Let us go into that house there and sit down and find out with our own eyes and ears whether this thing is true or not, whether this smith is a man or a monster. If we can't do a little thing like that, what right have we to put crosses on ballot papers? Inglewood and Pym exchanged a glance, and Warner, who was no fool, saw in that glance that Moon was gaining ground. The motives that led Arthur to think of surrender were indeed very different from those which affected Dr. Cyrus Pym. All Arthur's instincts were on the side of privacy and polite settlement. 
He was very English, and would often endure wrongs rather than right them by scenes and serious rhetoric. To play at once the buffoon and the knight-errant, like his Irish friend, would have been absolute torture to him. But even the semi-official part he had played that afternoon was very painful. He was not likely to be reluctant if anyone could convince him that his duty was to let sleeping dogs lie. On the other hand, Cyrus Pym belonged to a country in which things are possible that seem crazy to the English. Regulations and authorities exactly like one of Innocent's pranks or one of Michael's satires really exist, propped up by placid policemen and imposed on bustling businessmen. Pym knew whole states which are vast and yet secret and fanciful, each as big as a nation, yet as private as a lost village, and as unexpected as an apple pie bed. States where no man may have a cigarette. States where any man may have ten wives. Very strict prohibition states. Very lax divorce states. All these large local vagaries had prepared Cyrus Pym's mind for small local vagaries in a smaller country. Infinitely more remote from England than any Russian or Italian, utterly incapable of even conceiving what English conventions are, he could not see the social impossibility of the Court of Beacon. It is firmly believed by those who shared the experiment that to the very end, Pym believed in that phantasmal court and supposed it to be some Britannic institution. Towards the synod, thus somewhat at a standstill, there approached through the growing haze and gloaming a short, dark figure with a walk apparently founded on the imperfect repression of a Negro breakdown. Something at once in the familiarity and the incongruity of this being moved Michael to even heartier outbursts of a healthy and humane flippancy. "'Why, here's little nosy Gould!' he exclaimed. "'Isn't the mere sight of him enough to banish all your morbid reflections?' "'Really,' replied Dr. Warner, "'I really fail to see how Mr. Gould affects the question, and I once more demand—' "'Hello! What's the funeral, gents?' inquired the newcomer with the air of an uproarious umpire. Doctor demandin' something? Always the way at a boarding house, you know. Always lots of demand, no supply. As delicately and impartially as he could, Michael restated his position, and indicated generally that Smith had been guilty of certain dangerous and dubious acts, and that there had even arisen an allegation that he was insane. Well, of course he is, said Moses Gould equably. It don't need old Olmes to see that. The awk-like face of Olmes, he added with abstract relish, showed a shide of disappointment the sleuth-like Gould haven't got there before him. If he is mad, began Inglewood. Well, said Moses, when a cove gets out on the tile the first night, there's generally a tile loose. You never objected before, said Diana Duke rather stiffly and you're generally pretty free with your complaints. I don't complain of him, said Moses magnanimously. The poor chap's harmless enough. You might tie him up in the garden here, and he'd make noises at the burglars. Moses, said Moon with solemn fervor, you are the incarnation of common sense. You think Mr. Innocent is mad. 
Let me introduce you to the incarnation of scientific theory. He also thinks Mr. Innocent is mad. Doctor, this is my friend, Mr. Gould. Moses, this is the celebrated Dr. Pym. The celebrated Dr. Cyrus Pym closed his eyes and bowed. He also murmured his national war cry in a low voice, which sounded like, Pleased to meet you. Now, you two people, said Michael cheerfully, who both think our poor friend mad, shall jolly well go into that house over there and prove him mad. What could be more powerful than the combination of scientific theory with common sense? United you stand, divided you fall. I will not be so uncivil as to suggest that Dr. Pym has no common sense. I confine myself to recording the chronological accident that he has not shown us any so far. I take the freedom of an old friend in staking my shirt that Moses has no scientific theory. Yet against this strong coalition, I am ready to appear, armed with nothing but an intuition, which is American for a guess. Distinguished by Mr. Gould's assistance, said Pym, opening his eyes suddenly. I gather that though he and I are identical in primary diagnosis, there is yet between us something that cannot be called a disagreement, something which we may perhaps call a... He put the points of thumb and forefinger together, spreading the other fingers exquisitely in the air, and seemed to be waiting for somebody else to tell him what to say. Catching flies? inquired the affable Moses. A divergence, said Dr. Pym, with a refined sigh of relief. A divergence. Granted that the man in question is deranged, he would not necessarily be all that science requires in a homicidal maniac. Has it occurred to you, observed Moon, who was leaning on the gate again and did not turn round, that if he were a homicidal maniac, he might have killed us all here while we were talking. Something exploded silently underneath all their minds, like sealed dynamite in some forgotten cellars. They all remembered for the first time for some hour or two that the monster of whom they were talking was standing quietly among them. They had left him in the garden like a garden statue, there might have been a dolphin coiling round his legs, or a fountain pouring out of his mouth for all the notice they had taken of Innocent Smith. He stood with his crest of blonde, blown hair thrust somewhat forward, his fresh-colored, rather short-sighted face looking patiently downwards at nothing in particular, his huge shoulders humped, and his hands in his trousers' pockets. So far as they could guess, he had not moved at all. His green coat might have been cut out of the green turf on which he stood. In his shadow, Pym had expounded and Rosamond expostulated. Michael had ranted and Moses had ragged. He had remained like a thing graven, the god of the garden. A sparrow had perched on one of his heavy shoulders, and then, after correcting its costume of feathers, had flown away. Why? cried Michael, with a shout of laughter. The court of Beacon has opened, and shut up again too. You all know now I am right. 
Your buried common sense has told you what my buried common sense has told me. Smith might have fired off a hundred cannons instead of a pistol, and you would still know he was harmless, as I know he is harmless. Back we all go to the house and clear a room for discussion. For the High Court of Beacon, which has already arrived at its decision, is just about to begin its inquiry. Just a goin' to begin, cried little Mr. Moses in an extraordinary sort of disinterested excitement, like that of an animal during music or a thunderstorm. Follow on to the eye court of eggs and bacon. Have a kipper from the old firm. His lordship complimented Mr. Gould on the eye professional delicacy he had shown, and which was worthy of the best traditions of the saloon bar. And three of scotch art, miss. Oh, chase me, girls. The girls betraying no temptation to chase him, he went away in a sort of waddling dance of pure excitement, and had made a circuit of the garden before he reappeared, breathless but still beaming. Moon had known his man when he realized that no people presented to Moses Gould could be quite serious, even if they were quite furious. The glass doors stood open on the side nearest to Mr. Moses Gould, and as the feet of that festive idiot were evidently turned in the same direction, everybody else went that way with the unanimity of some uproarious procession. Only Diana Duke retained enough rigidity to say the thing that had been boiling at her fierce feminine lips for the last few hours. Under the shadow of tragedy, she had kept it back as unsympathetic. "'In that case,' she said sharply, "'these cabs can be sent away.' "'Well, Innocent must have his bag, you know,' said Mary with a smile. "'I dare say the cabman would get it down for us.' "'I'll get the bag,' said Smith speaking for the first time in hours. His voice sounded remote and rude, like the voice of a statue. Those who had so long danced and disputed round his immobility were left breathless by his precipitance. With a run and spring, he was out of the garden into the street. With a spring and one quivering kick, he was actually on the roof of the cab. The cabman happened to be standing by the horse's head, having just removed its emptied nose-bag. Smith seemed for an instant to be rolling about on the cab's back in the embraces of his Gladstone bag. The next instant, however, he had rolled, as if by a royal luck, into the high seat behind, and with a shriek of piercing and appalling suddenness had sent the horse flying and scampering down the street. His evanescence was so violent and swift that this time it was all the other people who were turned into garden statues. Mr. Moses Gould, however, being ill-adapted both physically and morally for the purposes of permanent sculpture, came to life some time before the rest, and, turning to Moon, remarked, like a man starting chattily with a stranger on an omnibus, "'Tile loose, eh? Cab loose, anyhow.' There followed a fatal silence." And then Dr. Warner said, with a sneer like a club of stone, This is what comes of the court of Beacon, Mr. Moon. You have let loose a maniac on the whole metropolis. Beacon House stood, as has been said, at the end of a long crescent of continuous houses. The little garden that shut it in ran out into a sharp point like a green cape, pushed out into the sea of two streets. Smith and his cab shot up one side of the triangle, 
and certainly most of those standing inside it never expected to see him again. At the apex, however, he turned the horse sharply round and drove with equal violence up the other side of the garden, visible to all those in the group. With a common impulse, the little crowd ran across the lawn as if to stop him, but they soon had reason to duck and recoil. Even as he vanished up the street for the second time, he let the big yellow bag fly from his hand so that it fell in the center of the garden, scattering the company like a bomb, and nearly damaging Dr. Warner's hat for the third time. Long before they had collected themselves, the cab had shot away with a shriek that went into a whisper. "'Well,' said Michael Moon, with a queer note in his voice, "'you may as well all go inside anyhow. "'We've got two relics of Mr. Smith, at least, "'his fiancée and his trunk.' "'Why do you want us to go inside?' asked Arthur Inglewood, "'in whose red brow and rough brown hair botheration seemed to have reached its limit. "'I want the rest to go in,' said Michael in a clear voice." because I want the whole of this garden in which to talk to you. There was an atmosphere of irrational doubt. It was really getting colder, and a night wind had begun to wave the one or two trees in the twilight. Dr. Warner, however, spoke in a voice devoid of indecision. I refuse to listen to any such proposal, he said. You have lost this ruffian, and I must find him. I don't ask you to listen to any proposal, answered Moon quietly. I only ask you to listen. He made a silencing movement with his hand, and immediately the whistling noise that had been lost in the dark streets on one side of the house could be heard from quite a new quarter on the other side. Through the night maze of streets the noise increased with incredible rapidity, and the next moment the flying hoofs and flashing wheels had swept up to the blue-railed gate at which they had originally stood. Mr. Smith got down from his perch with an air of absent-mindedness, and coming back into the garden stood in the same elephantine attitude as before. "'Get inside! Get inside!' cried Moon hilariously, with the air of one shooing a company of cats. "'Come, come, be quick about it! Didn't I tell you I wanted to talk to Inglewood?' How they were all really driven into the house again, it would have been difficult afterwards to say. They had reached the point of being exhausted with incongruities, as people at a farce are ill with laughing, and the brisk growth of the storm among the trees seemed like a final gesture of things in general. Inglewood lingered behind them, saying with a certain amicable exasperation, "'I say, do you really want to speak to me?' "'I do.' said Michael. Very much. Night had come, as it generally does, quicker than the twilight had seemed to promise. While the human eye still felt the sky as light gray, a very large and lustrous moon, appearing abruptly above a bulk of roofs and trees, proved by contrast that the sky was already a very dark gray indeed. A drift of barren leaves across the lawn, a drift of riven clouds across the sky, seemed to be lifted on the same strong and yet laborious wind. "'Arthur,' said Michael, "'I began with an intuition, but now I am sure. 
You and I are going to defend this friend of yours before the blessed court of Beacon, and to clear him too. Clear him of both crime and lunacy. Just listen to me while I preach to you for a bit. They walked up and down the darkening garden together as Michael Moon went on. Can you, asked Michael, shut your eyes and see some of those queer old hieroglyphics they stuck up on white walls in the old hot countries? How stiff they were in shape, and yet how gaudy in color. Think of some alphabet of arbitrary figures picked out in black and red or white and green, with some old Semitic crowd of nosy ghouls' ancestors staring at it, and try to think why the people put it up at all. Inglewood's first instinct was to think that his perplexing friend had really gone off his head at last. There seemed so reckless a flight of irrelevancy from the tropic-pictured walls he was asked to imagine to the gray, windswept, and somewhat chilly suburban garden in which he was actually kicking his heels. How he could be more happy in one by imagining the other he could not conceive. Both, in themselves, were unpleasant. "'Why does everybody repeat riddles?' went on Moon abruptly. "'Even if they've forgotten the answers.' Riddles are easy to remember, because they are hard to guess. So were those stiff old symbols in black, red, or green easy to remember, because they had been hard to guess. Their colors were plain, their shapes were plain. Everything was plain, except the meaning. Inglewood was about to open his mouth in an amiable protest, but Moon went on plunging quicker and quicker up and down the garden and smoking faster and faster. Dances, too, he said. Dances were not frivolous. Dances were harder to understand than inscriptions and texts. The old dances were stiff, ceremonial, highly colored, but silent. Have you noticed anything odd about Smith? Well, really, cried Inglewood, left behind in a collapse of humor. Have I noticed anything else? Have you noticed this about him? Asked Moon with unshaken persistency. That he has done so much, and said so little. When first he came, he talked, but in a gasping, irregular sort of way, as if he wasn't used to it. All he really did was actions, painting red flowers on black gowns, or throwing yellow bags onto the grass. I tell you that big green figure is figurative, like any green figure capering on some white eastern wall. My dear Michael, cried Inglewood, in a rising irritation which increased with the rising wind, you are getting absurdly fanciful. I think of what has just happened, said Michael steadily. The man has not spoken for hours, and yet he has been speaking all the time. He fired three shots from a six-shooter and then gave it up to us, when he might have shot us dead in our boots. How could he express his trust in us better than that? He wanted to be tried by us. How could he have shown it better than by standing quite still and letting us discuss it? He wanted to show that he stood there willingly and could escape if he liked. How could he have shown it better than by escaping in the cab? and coming back again. Innocent Smith is not a madman. He is a ritualist. 
he wants to express himself, not with his tongue, but with his arms and legs. With my body I thee worship, as it says in the marriage service. I begin to understand the old plays and pageants. I see why the mutes at a funeral were mute. I see why the mummers were mum. They meant something. And Smith means something, too. All other jokes have to be noisy, like little nosy Gould's jokes, for instance. The only silent jokes are the practical jokes. Poor Smith, properly considered, is an allegorical practical joker. What he has really done in this house has been as frantic as a war dance, but as silent as a picture. I suppose you mean, said the other dubiously, that we have got to find out what all these crimes meant, as if they were so many colored picture puzzles. But even supposing that they do mean something, why, bless my soul! Taking the turn of the garden quite naturally, he had lifted his eyes to the moon, by this time risen big and luminous, and had seen a huge, half-human figure sitting on the garden wall. It was outlined so sharply against the moon that for the first flash it was hard to be certain even that it was human. The hunched shoulders and outstanding hair had rather the air of a colossal cat. It resembled a cat also in the fact that when first startled, it sprang up and ran with easy activity along the top of the wall. As it ran, however, its heavy shoulders and small, stooping head rather suggested a baboon. The instant it came within reach of a tree, it made an ape-like leap and was lost in the branches. The gale, which by this time was shaking every shrub in the garden, made the identification yet more difficult, since it melted the moving limbs of the fugitive in the multitudinous moving limbs of the tree. "'Who is there?' shouted Arthur. "'Who are you? Are you innocent?' "'Not quite,' answered an obscure voice among the leaves. "'I cheated you once about a penknife.' The wind in the garden had gathered strength, and was throwing the tree backwards and forwards with the man in the thick of it, just as it had on the gay and golden afternoon when he had first arrived. "'But are you Smith?' asked Inglewood as in an agony. "'Very nearly,' said the voice out of the tossing tree. "'But you must have some real names,' shrieked Inglewood in despair. "'You must call yourself something.' "'Call myself something,' thundered the obscure voice, shaking the tree so that all its ten thousand leaves seemed to be talking at once. "'I call myself Roland Oliver Isaiah Charlemagne Arthur Hildebrand Homer Dante Michelangelo Shakespeare Breakspeare.' "'But, man alive,' began Inglewood in exasperation. "'That's right, that's right,' came with a roar out of the rocking tree. "'That's my real name!' And he broke a branch, and one or two autumn leaves fluttered away across the moon." That concludes today's chapter reading. As always, I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson from Kitty Wham Productions, and you can learn more about me, my podcast, and my writing by visiting my website, kittywhamproductions.com. Thanks for listening, and tune in again next Wednesday, August 11th, for Chapter 6, Part 1.